You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I am here on this Monday with Aaron. This show is presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them that we told you to call. Okay, quick tweet, Aaron, to start the show so we can get a ruling on how to handle the Game of Thrones discussion. Um, This was from Greg, and Greg wasn't the only person to ask us to at least give a spoiler alert before we start talking about the previous night's show. Um, This was his tweet. Uh, He sent it on Friday. He says, what's the Game of Thrones policy going to be on on the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast? I know you are going to want to talk about each episode. HBO etiquette says you have to wait a day and Tom Lavero's not going to sit through a dragon laced recap. That's true. <laughs> that would will, be really fun if we tried. He, yeah, he said, Will there be a regular Wednesday segment? I had no idea there was an HBO etiquette I, thing. Is that a real thing? I don't know. That's a real thing. That can't be a real I, thing. I don't know. That's a real thing. Here's my take on it. At least, especially for this final season, when it comes to premiere TV like this, you treat it like a live event. This is some, it's not a movie, it's not something you have to pay to see. It's no different than the Masters was yesterday. <laughs> Somebody could have recorded it. Someone could it. have recorded it yeah. and tried to avoid it. Right. What we will do, though, we'll save it for the very end of the show. That's Get I, all the sports out of the way and save it for the very I think end that's of the a, show. That, I think that's a reasonable compromise. I mean, we'll we'll do it on Mondays, end of the show, spoiler alert you know, provided in advance. Yes. That'll make it easy for those of you that care and just as easy for those of you who don't care and I will about make it the very, show. By the way, I, will make it, I, I put something together. It will be very clear when we're about to start talking about Game of Thrones. All so right. you can bail. Very good. Um Last 10 minutes or so of Monday shows then for the next six weeks. Uh, just a short tease. I liked last night, and not everyone did, but I did. All right, that's a quick tease, and you can save your thoughts for later on. Uh, we'll start the show with sports, and we'll start the show with Tiger Woods, which I think watching that yesterday was one of those memorable sports watching moments of, of my sports watching life. I don't want to exaggerate this at all, but I think when people, you know, say about a sports event, I'll never forget when yesterday was one of those. I'll never forget the day that Tiger Woods won the Masters after 11 years without a major. I'll never forget that, and I think most of you will never forget Tiger Woods winning yesterday's 2019 Masters. I mean, there's a lot of those I'll never forget. You know, taking the local stuff out of the equation, like none of us will ever forget that we're around for it. Rigo's run in Super Bowl 17. I mean, there, there are lots of Redskin plays, and no one's ever going to forget the Caps winning the title. You know what? For sports fans, I bet Ovechkin's one of those moments. I'll never, I'll never forget when Alex Ovechkin finally won that Stanley Cup. You know, I'll never forget when Hank Aaron beat Babe Ruth's record or Ali beat Foreman or the Miracle on Ice or NC State beating Houston or Villanova beating Georgetown. In golf, it's, you know, before yesterday, it was I'll never forget the 86 Masters and Nicholas's run on the back nine to win the 86 Masters at 46 years old. Uh, it's, it's in that category. It is. I, I don't want to... I don't want to overly, you know, exaggerate it. You know, I, I don't want to put it, I, you know, I, I don't want to put it in a place where it doesn't deserve it. But I think yesterday, Tiger Woods winning the Masters deserves it. 
it, it moves the needle. He does. Tiger Woods does. Like no other athlete in this country, let alone maybe he may be the biggest needle mover in the world. I mean, somebody may say a certain soccer player playing a certain game would be the biggest needle mover. Maybe. The completion of his comeback is the greatest of them all. The greatest comebacks of them all. You know, you can scoff at that and say, well, it's golf. But the man could barely walk three years ago. He's had four back surgeries. The last one was a fusion of his L5-S1 back disc. For those that have had lower back issues, and I'm one of those, I've had two L5-S1 surgeries, you know that there is very little from a pain standpoint that compares to nerve pain. It's the worst. He had no quality of life, couldn't sleep because he couldn't get comfortable enough to sleep. He was on painkillers, maybe even addicted to painkillers. He couldn't leave the house. He could barely function as a human being. The pain was debilitating, and he was trying to do everything he could to just limit the pain so he could sleep, so that he could leave the the house. Painkillers, sleeping pills, Xanax, all of it. I'm not going to make this about me, but I do want to share a story that I've shared before because it... for me, was personal, and it weighs into what we saw yesterday and my claim that yesterday was the best comeback of of them all in terms of athlete comebacks. Some of you remember that listened to Cooley and I on radio. Um, He showed up for his tournament at Congressional, the PR Day, which was a few months in advance. This was about three years. This was three years ago. And we had scheduled um, an opportunity to sit down with Tiger and record an interview. Our show was over, and we recorded the interview. And he walked up to where we were, and he started walking over towards our table. And there was an uncomfortable look that he gave towards the chair that was seated uh, in front of us. And he looked at the chair, and he looked back at the person that had walked him over. I guess it was somebody from his group. And I got up because I knew exactly what he was referring to. The chair had no back. It had no back to it, and he wasn't going to sit there. And I said, don't worry, you're not going to sit in that chair. I'll go get you a more comfortable chair. And I went and found another chair for him to sit in. And while I was away, CJ or Cooley or somebody said, Kevin's had uh, multiple back surgeries too. So when I got back with the chair, he asked me about it. And that started a 20-minute conversation (laughs) with Tiger Woods about our back surgeries. I had had two L5-S1 discectomies. He had already had three of them. And the next one was going to be, and I remember saying it to him, I said, if you need it again, it's going to be a fusion, right? And he said, yeah, the next one's a fusion. And we talked for 20 minutes about our respective back surgeries and talked about how much uh, the pain affected and impacted his life from picking up his kids and holding them. His kids were young, which, by the way, parenthetically, is one of those motions that can completely wreck your lower back. I remember when I was going through it too, my youngest was still young and you had to be careful about bending down and picking him up. In fact, Jason Day in the opening round of the Masters the other day threw his back out. You know how he did it? Picking up his young son or daughter, one of his young children. So Tiger that day talked about how he hoped that his most recent L5-S1 surgery would be enough 
but he wasn't sure. And I remember him saying when I asked him about the fusion, I said, is, is a fusion surgery next? And he said, it, it, it would be, I'm trying to hold off on that because if I have that surgery, it probably means I'll never play competitive golf again. And the, the fusion surgery is supposed to take away a certain level of explosiveness that you have with that lower back. Um, but he said, if I get there, I'll have to get there because I have to be able to live more comfortably. Anyway, I'll never forget that conversation. And I told him, by the way, I, before we ended up starting to record the actual interview, I just said to him, I go, lots of ice. And he just smiled and said that ice packs had become his best friend. So this is the greatest comeback story ever from my perspective. Ali won a t title at a very old age, but he beat Leon Spinks. Peyton Manning appeared to have an injury that wouldn't allow him to throw a football again. That was a remarkable comeback in the first year in Denver, and the numbers he put up were amazing. When they won the Super Bowl, they did it with primarily defense. Jordan came back after two years of trying to play baseball, and he was still at an age and still athletically gifted. Agassi, Andre Agassi, fell out of the rankings and fell so low in the rankings that he had to play satellite tournaments before returning to the main tour for what turned out to be a monster second act of his career. Actually, it may have been his third act. And it was unexpected, but he was still relatively young. By the way, um, Agassi's career ended in part because of age, but mostly in part because he had major lower back issues going on towards the end of his career. Tiger Woods had to take shots, had to take painkillers, had to take, you know, high level, you know, anti-inflammatories just to function. We're a year and a half away from him not even being able to swing a golf club. That was just a year and a half ago. This is the greatest comeback ever. And it was completed yesterday. He's been in the process of making it the greatest comeback ever just by competing at the level that he's been competing at. Remember, he was in the lead at the British Open last summer on the back nine. And Molinari ended up winning that tournament. He shot 65 on the final day of the PGA Championship in August and nearly beat Brooks Kepka from behind. He won the, uh, the season-ending tour championship in Atlanta. You know, it was already close to one of the greatest comebacks of all time, and he just completed it yesterday. It was an amazing sports moment, an amazing sports moment. From a year and a half ago, not even being able to swing a club, from having to go to a surgery that a lot of orthopedics would tell you took away a lot of his, his explosiveness, and some doubted that he'd ever be able to compete, you know, at that level. They did say, I remember we had um, actually my orthopedic surgeon on the show, and he's become a good friend of mine, and, and he said he'll be able to play golf again. It's just a question of whether or not he'll be able to get it to the point where he can play at that level, although he didn't discount it. Um, a, a couple of observations from the tournament in, from Tiger's Day yesterday that I didn't want to forget to mention. First of all, I'm surprised that Molinari fell apart. Uh, he appeared to have been a machine for this entire tournament. And by the way, coming into this tournament, he's been playing so well. He won here for his first win ever at Congressional last summer. 
um, and then went on to win the British Open. And he's been, you know, he's been a monster ever since. I, I was really surprised. He, he fell apart. You know, he hit it in the water at 12 and then hit a branch that knocked it into the water, into the creek at 15, and he was done. I mean, he went from a two-shot lead to a two-shot deficit in a few holes. I was also very surprised that Kepka missed the putt at 18. I thought he was going to make that putt and force Tiger to par 18 to avoid a playoff. I, at the beginning of the day, I felt Kepka was going to win. Um, he's become the clutch performer in the sport. He had won, you know, three majors in the last seven, two of the last three coming in, and he had had some injuries. He didn't play in the Masters last year. He looks to me like the guy that's going to win, you know, six, seven majors, not fourteen or fifteen. Tiger got his fifteenth. But I thought most of the day the winner would come from either Kepka or Molinari. I really didn't think, watching it, that Tiger was going to win. I was hoping it was a compelling watch. But the tournament really changed at 12. When Kepka first in the group before Tiger, Molinari, and Finau, Kepka hit it into the water. And then Molinari did as part of Tiger's group. And Tiger hit it on the green and two-putted for par. Second observation about yesterday is that Tiger didn't win in fluke fashion. You know, terrible weather or the best players were out of the field or most of them didn't play well. I mean, Rory didn't play well this weekend and he was a prohibitive favorite. And Rose was either the second or the third favorite and he didn't make the cut shockingly. But Tiger won against many, many of the youngins playing great. Kepka, Dustin Johnson. Day, Finau, Rom, Xander Schauffele, who was in it. Cantley was in it. You know, again, Rory wasn't a factor this weekend, but Tiger survived a push from some of the world's best on the back nine at a major. It was not a gimme. It was not a fluke. Not at all. Third observation about yesterday. In watching this, I was not sitting there on social media. I I just, when I'm into something, I'm not sitting there tweeting about it, unless it's a Redskins game or a game of one of our local teams. My son was, and he was like, he's blowing up Twitter. And I did have a sense, not even being on social media, that yesterday, even though it was a Sunday morning, early afternoon, that the whole world was watching. You know, it was an odd start because they wanted to beat the, the terrible storms that came in yesterday afternoon for a lot of people in the Southeast and in the Midwest. Um, But, you know, it just felt like you were sitting there participating and watching something as Tiger took the lead in the back nine. That if you're a sports fan, casual, or, or, you know, really into it, or just anybody in the world knew what was going on in Augusta, Georgia, yesterday, late morning, early afternoon. Um, The next observation about yesterday... There is nothing better than a redemption story in sports in particular, especially when that person or athlete has achieved a level of greatness previously that few have achieved. To see that person have a second act, uh, third, whatever, whatever it is, you just, it's, there's something so incredibly compelling about that. It doesn't matter what the person did. Most of us root for that person to fight back and win again. Tiger cheated on his wife with waitresses and porn stars and just about anything that moved. And none of that mattered yesterday. The significant majority of you, the audience, 
wanted him to win, and have been rooting for him since he came back just over a year ago. I mean, Michael Vick did one of the most heinous things ever, something that people absolutely said they would never forgive, yet many were, were really rooting for his redemption story when he started to play well in Philadelphia. There really is nothing like a, you know, someone who's fallen the way Tiger had fallen. Personal life, professional life, physical health, and then comes back from that. People love to watch people, you know, come back from, you know, rock bottom, which he was at in 2009-2010. Um, the next thing that I wanted to mention have you ever seen anybody of Tiger Zilk, one of the most famous people on the planet, a must-watch performer, be such a boring interview? He has nothing to say. The attraction in Tiger Woods is solely in him as the performer. The attraction, the attraction to him is his greatness as a golfer. The recent attraction to him, as, I, as mentioned, is also, you know, sort of in, in what's involved in that is the journey back from rock bottom. That's a big part of how people feel about him now. But watching him pursue it, and it is different than watching him talk about pursuing it. He is truly, truly one of the most boring interviews of anybody with that profile that I have ever seen. Ali was must-watch in the ring and outside of it. Jordan, you know, I know he didn't have a lot to say, and he was so narrowly focused on everything, but Jordan had some incredible charisma to him. You know, Tiger, in an interview, there's nothing there, man. I'm not saying he's not smart. I think he's very, very bright. I just think he has this very protective shield. Like it's a very, he's very mechanical in the way he handles these things. A anyway, th that was just an observation. The next one is this about him and yesterday. You know, the question of will this lead to more? Nobody, kn nobody knows if he'll win another major, but I think that it's like unquestionable, but by, by the way, all of this presumes health, right? I mean, we're having a conversation about his future and obviously the, the, the assumption is that he remains healthy because if he doesn't, then he's not going to win anything else. But if he remains healthy, he's going to win more tournaments. I don't know if they're going to be majors, but he's going to win more. You know, he's going to contend at majors. He had already contended at the last two coming into the masters. He had the lead at the British, as, as I mentioned, and had a chance to win from behind at the PGA in August. He's now had a legit chance in the last three major championships. And yesterday, he closed it out and won. I don't know, will it open up the floodgates? He's playing Beth Page next month in the PGA Championship, which, if you didn't know, has been moved from August to May. Players' Championship got moved to March. So you're going to have in order now, moving forward, Masters, PGA Championship, U.S. Open, and then the Open Championship, the British Open, in order. So the major championships in golf will be over by the time we get to late July. No August, you know, they're, they're not, they don't want to, they, they didn't want the PGA Championship to compete with, 
you know, people on vacation. It was the last. It was the least important of the four majors. You know, believe it or not, preseason football had already started when and and people actually watch that, even though it's the worst product in all of sports, I think. But I don't know. I mean, he's had a chance now to win three majors in a row. Um, I of course he's going to contend. Yesterday wasn't a fluke, as I mentioned. It wasn't against a soft field. It wasn't against some sort of extenuating weather circumstance. Golf is nothing without him to most of you. And now with him in it, God, it makes next month's PGA Championship at a place he's won, Bethpage Black, a must-watch. He's won at Pebble Beach. That's the U.S. Open in June. Best thing about a West Coast U.S. Open is you're sitting there watching it into the late, like 10 o'clock at night, it's still going on. It's it's in on the East Coast, it's a prime time event. I got news for you right now. If you want to see ratings, imagine the prime time ratings of a US Open at Pebble Beach with Tiger in contention on Saturday night and Sunday night. That that, it, that, that will be the all-timer. Uh he's at 15 now. You know, Jack's at 18. And now that's really what the rest of this is about. Will he get to Jack's 18? He's 43 years old. He's got three more majors this year. He's got five to seven more years of playing at least four a year, maybe more than that. I mean, that's the thing about golf now. If he stays fit, he's got 28 to 38 more majors in him as a legit contender potentially. And he's only got to get three more to tie Jack? You know who had a good weekend at 48 years old? Phil Mickelson. He was in it. He was finished after day one. He was in second place. He had a good weekend. I would bet you right now that if he stays healthy, he will in his 50s lead a major at some point. 51, 53, 55 years old. I mean, Tom Watson led the British Open at 58 or 59 years old. Whenever that was. What a day. What a day. Tiger's Masters win of 2019 is one of those sports moments as a sports fan that you'll never forget. Never forget. You're not a golf guy, right? I'm not a golf guy. Were you watching? I was. I was in the uh, press box at Nats Park. And it was funny. It, it's such a big thing. They even had some of the TVs on the Masters. And I and I pulled it also pulled it up on my computer. I can I can only imagine that they had it. I mean, it, they they don't normally put stuff up on the other TVs. Nobody wanted to be anywhere yesterday if they had to be, other right. than in front of their television watching Tiger do this. I I still going back to my first you know point. Uh, I, I'm surprised he won. I didn't think he was going to win. I I thought he needed to be in the lead after Saturday, and he was in the final group, which was a big step to get into that final group. And the only reason he was in the final group was because of the weather, and he got into the final group because they went to threesomes, teeing off front and back nine to get the final round in before the weather, the expected weather was to come through. If it had been normal weather, he would have been in the next to last group. Finau and Molinari would have been the final pairing because Finau got to his number first, first in, last out. Tiger would have been in the next-to-last group. I wonder if that would have changed things if Molinari and Finau had been able to go around without Tiger in their group. 
you know, there was clearly, you know, there is an impact to these players when they play with Tiger. Now, Molinari came through it at the British, you know, over the summer. But Tiger, I felt going into it, needed to be in the lead. This is his first major championship coming from behind. The previous 14 were either with him in the lead or tied for the lead in the final group on Sunday. Anyway, uh, an incredible sports day. Um, I love, by the way, just loved it that it started at nine in the morning yesterday. It was great. Oh, I, I definitely like that a lot better. It's one of the reasons. I know, it's, I know it's not good for ratings, but it was great as a viewer. Yeah, I, I don't know. Have the ratings come out? Yeah, apparently it was a, a point lower than last year. Yeah, I mean, the, the time of day was going to impact that for sure. Uh, they also replayed it. Um, it re-aired it, but most watched it in the morning. Um but I'm sure that I wonder if there was a way they could combine the re-airing with the whatever. I love the British Open never rates well because it's a morning telecast. But from a convenience standpoint, what's better than waking up on Sunday morning and watching the Masters? Uh, it was great. Uh, we'll get to Mark Schlebaugh, who was there. Um, Mark, of course, has been with ESPN forever and has been one of their key college football writers forever. And I've had him on the podcast and the radio show talking college football, but he covers golf for them as well. And he was there and we had Scott on last week. We had Sands on, uh, on Friday. Um, I'm going to, Scott will be on again Thursday. So we'll talk a lot about the masters when he's on Thursday and we're going to try to get Barry at some point who was there covering it for the post as well. Quick word about window nation. It's window Nation's spring cleaning sales event right now. Are your windows having issues, cracks, hard to open, unusual moisture, or are you just window shopping? If so, call Window Nation today and schedule a free in-home estimate. There's no risk a free in-home estimate. Window Nation will save you 33% off your entire purchase, and that's window siding and doors. Get upfront pricing and no hidden terms. Just 33% off every style of window, house of siding, and all doors, including labor. Plus, for the next few weeks, save even more with 0% interest for five full years on your entire purchase. That 0% interest until 2024. Get a jump on your spring cleanup and call Window Nation, where every window is installed by factory-trained professionals and guaranteed to be done right the first time. Every window is backed by a company with an A-plus Better Business Bureau ranking and over 10,000 positive online reviews. These are the main reasons Window Nation has installed over 475,000 windows in more than 80,000 homes, including mine. I've had Window Nation install windows twice over the last 10 years, and many of my listeners on radio and the podcast have done the same, and it's worked out for all of us. Harley, Aaron, Eric, uh, I want to mention them because they are friends and I know how good they are at running a company and what great entrepreneurs they are. And I also know that these savings won't last long, but if you call 866-90-NATION, that's 866-90-NATION, and mention my name, they will take good care of you. 866-90-NATION, also go to windownation.com. All right, let's bring in Mark Schlebaugh, who um, has been always one of my favorite guests talking college football over the years. 
Uh, he was in Augusta covering the Masters yesterday uh, for ESPN and ESPN.com. And I, I want to just start with this because I've, I've spent some time already here this morning talking about it from, you know, a sitting on my couch watching it from uh, the television, uh, you know, in front of a television standpoint. And it is one of those moments for me as a sports fan that I'll never forget. You know, it's, it's in that category of incredible moments. What was it like to be there? You've been at a lot of big sporting events over your career. What was yesterday like? Um, it was probably at the top. I mean, I, I've been there before uh, when I was with the Atlanta Journal. I was there when Ben Crenshaw won. I was there when Phil won the first time. I was there when Tiger won in 02. Um, I was there for Greg Norman's collapse. I think I was in college at the time. Um, you know, and I've been to Super Bowls, and I was there for game six when the Cubs won the World Series, and I'm a huge Cubs fan, so that was huge, but I mean, just the, you know, just the backstory of what he's come back from, some of it self-inflicted, um, you know, at that place, which I think is the most special place, you know, sporting venue on earth. Um, and to just listen to the, the galleries and the patrons roar every time and the, and the way he did it coming from two shots back at the start of the day. I think he was down three after 11. Um, you know, it's good for golf. It's 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 really good for the PGA Tour. Um, I think to see guys like Bernhard Langer and uh, Justin Thomas and and Bubba Watson, you know, waiting around to congratulate him. I think they know what it means. I mean, it's you know the ratings speak for themselves. Uh, speak for themselves. The interest, I think, will be back up. And, and now, you know, we've got a race or a chase to see if Tiger can catch. Uh, Jack Nicholas with 18 majors. We'll get to some of that here in a moment. Um, watching the tournament, um, I felt like I didn't believe that Molinari was going to break. He did at 12, mm-hmm. and I definitely didn't think that Kepko would miss that putt at 18. In fact, the whole day as I'm watching it there with my one of my three sons, I, I just said, it's going to be Kepka at the end of this. This dude just seems unbreakable, unflappable, and as clutch a performer as there is in the sport right now, um, which of those things surprised you? I mean, did you did you have a similar sense watching it, or did you think Tiger was gonna was going to prevail eventually, ultimately? You, you know, we were sitting there Saturday, and, and one of my editors said, you know, you should start writing a, a Tiger wins column, and I was like, he's not going to win. And then, <laughs> you know, I watched how the rest of the day transpired, where you had four or five guys within striking distance, and Tiger was just a couple of shots back, and it's just in my gut, you know, I just felt like it was going to happen, that, you know, it was meant to happen, it was meant to happen for him, it was meant to happen for, for golf, and so I started writing Saturday night, and had the column ready to go, right when the putt fell in on 18, but, you know, Molinari was the biggest surprise to me, because the dude is an absolute machine, he right. had one bogey in the first 54 holes, um, I think back on Thursday, um, you know, he made putt after putt after putt through the front nine, the first nine, and it just seemed like every time you thought Tiger was maybe going to get a stroke, Molinari drained one from 12 or 15 feet, and to see him plunk it in the water on 12 and then clip the tree on 15, you know, it, it was it was really surprising because he has been, you know, since the Open Championship last year, probably – he and Rory, the two most steady players in the world. Um, you know, and I wrote Saturday night when we were picking who we thought was going to win, I picked Tiger, and I said that, you know, one guy was going to sleep better than everybody else, and it was going to be Tiger Woods because 
he's been there, you know, five times. And he knew, you know, he'd been there four times. He knew what it took. He knew what it was like to to play in front of galleries where the patrons are, are 30 deep and windy conditions with the storms coming in and, you know, his course knowledge and just having played it so much and won there, I think I think is what put him over the top. And, yeah, but I agree with you on Kepka. Kepka's a stud. I mean, you know, he, he may get Pebble Beach, he may get Best Days, but that guy, you know, he doesn't get enough respect, and he'll be the first one to tell you he doesn't get enough respect, and he just seems to thrive off of it. Um, you mentioned uh, about some of the players who were sitting there waiting for him. Um, Poulter was sitting there waiting for him. I, mm-hmm. that, that was a surprise to me. But Kepka was there, and I, I thought Tiger's embrace with him was as warm as, as any of the other players. Did anything? Did any of that surprise you, people who were there, and was it a s- surprise that someone wasn't there? Um, or did you not give it much thought? <laughs> I, it was, there were so many people. You know, I think the thing people don't realize, and, and I wrote about it in my column song yesterday, two years ago, Tiger thought he was done. Right. I mean, he had that, that spinal fusion surgery and basically had to come back from scratch. And the first time he said this week, the first time he hit a driver, it went like 90 yards and he was afraid to take a full swing. And it was guys like Ricky Fowler and DJ and JT and Kepka, guys like that who were playing rounds with him down in Florida just to get him back into the to the you know rhythm of playing and playing competitive golf and you know I, I, Charlie Hoffman said this week that you know he's just he's a completely different person and again you know a lot of the stuff he went through was self-inflicted with his ex-wife the DUI and some other things um but you know I think it I think it humbled him uh and they say he's a completely different guy you know he talks a lot more to his playing partners when when he's in tournaments he's a lot more interactive with the fans he's more friendly with the media uh i think he is a changed person and i think that's what humility does to you i think uh, i think he's, he's learned a lot over the last few years all right let's talk about what's next um i, I think all of us that have watched and I, I you know since his comeback you know a year and a half ago when it started i I, I've missed very little of, of each round he's played, everywhere he's played. And last year was so exciting at the end um, in Atlanta. And, you know, when he had a chance, legitimate chance with the lead on the back nine against Molinari at the, at the British and had a chance with that 65 on the final day against Kepka at the PGA. So he has contended. But I think so many people thought, you know, including me, I don't. is he going to actually come through and win a major? By the way, I don't think anybody doubted that he was going to win a tournament. It's especially after seeing him last year in a couple of those key spots early on when he actually did contend. Um, but what do you think moving forward? I mean, is Jack's 18 now much more in range than maybe you thought it was before? You know, what, what's the, what's the post masters 2019 Tiger Woods career look like? I mean, he's won at Beth page where they're going to have the PGA next month. He's won at Pebble beach where they have the U S open. He won about 15 strokes. It was a long time ago, but, you know, he, he said yesterday that when he won in Atlanta, the Tour Championship, that it proved to him that, that he could win a tournament, and then this past week proved to him that, that he could win a major. So I think he could grab Beth Page. I think he could grab Pebble Beach. I don't know that, that Royal Portrush fits his game real well. I don't know if anybody knows because they've just never been played there. But, um, you know, I, I just – I think he could get one more, but I, I think – you know, I don't, I don't think Brooks Kepka or Rory McIlroy or Dustin Johnson or 
you know, Jordan Spieth can get his game together. Those guys are going to just step aside. But I think if he can get one more this summer, you know, I think he's got a legitimate chance. And, you know, he's 43 years old. I think he's got five or six more years in him if his back holds up and he, and he doesn't have any other health issues. Um, you know, Mickelson's about to be 49. Um, and he's going to be a factor every time he goes to Augusta. Um, so I think, you know, I think, I think, I think Jack's record is, is in danger. No question about it. Yeah. I mean, the thing about the sport, you know, obviously all of this conversation, you know, assumes health because if he's not healthy, that changes everything. But if he's healthy, he's 43, he's going to play competitive golf, meaning four majors a year for at least the next five to seven years. And we know with this sport that we've had guys in their fifties at the top of the leaderboard, you know, whether it was couples, you know, at, at, at or near the top of the leaderboard at, at Augusta or, I mean, hell, Greg Norman and Tom, Tom Watson was late in his fifties. I think he was 58, 59 when he had the lead on the final day at the British, you know, whenever that was 10 years ago um he's he's gonna have so many chances mark this isn't a sport where you know age that the end is coming that it's not that the 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 end age wise is still in the distance yeah if he if if the knees hold up and the back hold the back holds up but uh you know he uh it's he played you know what was he 44th in driving distance this week right He's, I mean, this is a guy that used to hit it 40, 50 yards past everybody, and I think he's adapted his game and adjusted, and he's relying on, you know, Tita Green, and he's relying on his putting, and that was the big question for me coming into the week was the putting, just because he hadn't really putted well when he when he had played so far this year, but yeah, I mean, it's it look, it, it's going to be fun, and I'm I'm glad I'm covering golf now. It's, it's in been, addition to the college football because it's it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you've got two of the two of my favorite sports um, to cover. Um, what's more likely that he gets to number one in the world again, uh, or he wins? I don't know, two more majors. I think the majors. I just don't know if he'll play enough. Right. To get to number one. Um, I think he's going to pick and choose. I think he probably goes to Charlotte before the PGA, but you know I don't think he's going to be playing as much as, as the young guys. Um, I think he'll get. What is he six? Did he go to six this morning? Yeah, number six. The yeah, yeah, twelve to six. I mean, he'll get in the top five, but I still think there's a lot of good players. I think Justin Rose had a terrible week, but he's going to be up near the top. Captain McElroy. Um, you know, guys will keep playing. Here's the young guys coming. I mean, it's only a matter of time for Xander Shoffley or, you know, some of those other guys that were up near the top. You know, it's, it's, there's, it's deep and there's a lot of talent. I just don't know that there's a dominant player. And, uh, I think that gives Tiger a chance. All right. Um, uh, well, yeah, we'll finish up. I'll finish up with a, with a college football, uh, question. Uh, is it going to be Bam and Clemson again next year or not? I think they're the two favorites. I think certainly Clemson with uh, Trevor Lawrence coming back at quarterback. Um, you know, I said before last season, I thought he would win two Heisman's at least, and and I think we saw last year that he's certainly capable of that. I think as good as Deshaun Watson was, I think Trevor Lawrence is is a, is a generational player. I just think with the size and the arm strength and the mobility and his confidence, I think you know he's going to give Clemson a shot. They got to replace all those defensive linemen. Uh, which isn't going to be easy, but I just don't see anybody in the ACC 
who can really compete with him. Um, Bama, you know, two has got to stay healthy. I think he was banged up at the end of last year. I think they're going to replace their entire secondary. Um, you know, I don't think they're as talented as they were maybe five years ago. I think the recruiting slipped a little bit since Kirby Smart left and Jeremy Pruitt left and some other guys and a huge number of, of new coaches again this year. But, you know, I think, I think Alabama's probably one in the SEC. I think Georgia's probably two, and, and Georgia's just got to prove they can, they can beat Bama and get over the hump. And Ohio State's going to have Justin Fields uh, as their quarterback uh, next year in the Big Ten, um, which will be interesting to watch. Um, I I always love catching up with you on college football, but really enjoy the conversation about Tiger. You were you were lucky enough to be there yesterday. I can only imagine what it felt like because the electricity at the end there was incredible watching it uh, on television. Thanks so much, Mark. As always, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thanks to Mark, um, someone who was there yesterday at Augusta. I'm going to get to Reuben Foster next. Quick word about launch workplaces. If you live in the Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Upper Northwest D.C. area and you don't want a long commute and it's too hard to get work done from home, check out the new launch workplaces in Bethesda. They've got affordable private office solutions so you can get work done. It's a beautiful new space. Fully furnished offices, conference rooms, co-working desks, high-speed internet, and a lot more, including a cafe, complimentary coffee and drinks, and free parking and plenty of it. Uh, 24-7 access as well. Now, they've got places all around town, not just in Bethesda. So if you're looking to get out of your home or from another office into a new office and you don't need a lot of room, consider Launch Workplaces. Go to launchworkplaces.com and you can see all of their other locations. Now, if you call and you mention my name, you'll get an exclusive free two-day trial at the Bethesda facility. 240-800-6714 or visit launchworkplaces.com today. That's 240-800-6714 or launchworkplaces.com. All right, let's get to Reuben Foster. Uh, The league announced Friday that it will not suspend Reuben Foster. No suspension. Very surprising to me. I predicted he would get suspended. I thought he would, um, even after the charges were dropped uh, for the Tampa situation. Um, The league found that Foster did not violate, uh, violate its personal conduct policy, but they did fine him two game checks for violating conditions that the league required of him after he was suspended for the two games last season to start the year in San Francisco. So Reuben Foster, no suspension. I'm going to start with this. Um, the no suspension in the moment makes Bruce Allen and the Redskins look good. You know, it makes them look right. There's really no other way to spin it. You know, I, I Tommy's going to be on with me tomorrow. Um, I, I'm, I know he's got a spin of his own. Uh, he wrote a column. <laughs> it's hysterical. Um, and we'll talk more in depth about why he thinks there's still, you know, red flags everywhere. And there are, um, but uh, for different reasons from his perspective. But it's really hard. I don't even think Tommy would debate that Friday's news that Reuben Foster wasn't suspended made the Redskins look good and right. It really did. It doesn't mean they were right, but it makes them look right. And for them, I can promise you this. There was celebration. You know why? Because while they had some level of confidence that he that this latest situation in Tampa was really nothing 
that would come back and haunt him in the uh, in the way of an arrest, and they thought that he would be vindicated and that they would look good for what happened in Tampa. They weren't totally sure. They took, in picking him off waivers, a risk. They were one of only 32 teams to do it. They took a PR hit. They took a business hit. But they believed in the moment that it was worth the risk. And for now, it looks like that risk has started to pay off. So I will start this conversation by acknowledging that no suspension for Reuben Foster makes Bruce Allen and Dan Snyder in the moment look right, look good. I mention those two because I don't think anybody else was involved in the decision. They loved him in the 2017 draft, and when he became available, they did some quick due diligence, got comfortable enough after talking to some of his former teammates who were also Redskins, all right, and they did. They talked to some of them. They talked to Sean Dion Hamilton. They talked to Ryan Anderson, guys that were in the position group meetings and knew him, and they got comfortable enough to claim him. It's paid off so far in the form of his availability, his immediate availability. He will be available to the Redskins with no suspension. We'll see if it pays off in terms of performance. That's still to come. You know, for those, by the way, that thought it was stupid to claim him, be- claim him because he's not even that good, I said at the time, those people are wrong. He is a talent. I think he's got a chance to be a very good player. Of course, that implies that he stays out of trouble. Now, while I believe that Friday was a good day for Bruce and Dan, it still doesn't change the fact that they handled it poorly. These are two separate conversations. Some of you struggle with this, so I'll say it very slowly. The conversation about how they handled it is different from the conversation about them doing it. Don't tell me what I said and didn't say back in November. I know what I said, and I stand by it. I never presumed guilt or innocence. It was never about that. I didn't think the Skins should be the team claiming him on such short turnaround. I thought it was the wrong thing to do. All right, They've proven themselves right and they've made themselves look good in the moment by the fact that he was, that the charges were dropped and the league didn't suspend him. I thought it was too much of a risk. I was open to the possibility that the Redskins knew more than anybody else because of his Alabama connections with teammates in their locker room. I said there was a chance that they maybe had information that could fully exonerate Reuben Foster. But I also said at the time that I hated the way they handled it. I hate the way they handle a lot of these things. I think they're cowardly in the way they handle a lot of these things, including the Scott McLuhan situation and the anonymous leaks to the Post. They did smear him in the post with anonymous quotes. They did. That was the wrong way to handle it. Understand this, though. They were justified in their termination, and it was proven. The wrongful termination suit against the Redskins was not successful from Scott McLuhan's standpoint. The Redskins prevailed on that. I predicted that at the time, even though at the same time, I thought it was incredibly mean-spirited and low-rent with the anonymous leaks to the post about a guy that was really struggling with alcohol issues. Now, on this particular situation, at the time, it was much more about the Redskins' handling of it. I hated the way they handled the Reuben Foster thing. They stuck Doug out there, and he messed up and then had to apologize. 
I believed and said at the time that Bruce should have gotten out there, or Dan, but more likely than not, it would have been Bruce as the team president. Dan doesn't speak. He's a recluse. All right, Bruce should have gotten out there and faced the media man to men and women and said, we did this because we want to win. He should have owned it. And by the way, he'd look even better today if he had owned it. We did it because we believed he could help us win, period. If he did these things he was accused of, he'll never suit up for us. Our signing of Reuben Foster doesn't mean we condone domestic violence. Not even close to that. We don't. And then he could have listed the various charities and the events that Tanya Snyder and the team and everybody have supported over the years. But he should have come out and been direct and said, the league's going to conduct its investigation and they'll tell us if he's eligible. And he might play for us down the road if he's eligible. He might not. He may, he may not meet our requirements. But you're going to rip us regardless of whatever we do. And our only goal right now is to win football games. It's the only way out of this mess that we've gotten ourselves into over you know a decade plus. We think he can help us win football games if he's innocent of these charges. Questions. That's how it should have been handled. I didn't like the way they handled it. I also didn't like the risk they were taking. I was with the other 31 teams that didn't take the risk. I don't think the Redskins should have been the team taking the risk in addition to I thought the risk was too high. But for the moment, right now, you have to say, I don't think there's another position to take that the drop charges and the no suspension by the league is a result that makes the Redskins right now, when it comes to Reuben Foster, look like they were right to sign him. Again, doesn't mean that you can't have a problem with the way it was handled. It was handled cowardly by Bruce Allen and Dan Snyder, shoving Doug out there. There were other ways to handle it. They have not gotten that part right. They may have gotten Reuben Foster right. He can play. He can absolutely play. And you put him at inside linebacker, maybe with Sean Dion Hamilton and Payne and Allen in front of him, and who knows, Ryan Anderson on the outside, and I mean, it's just this defense, Landon Collins in the back, you got a lot of Bama players. You got a lot of players that have been very successful in college. And at least two of them so far in Allen and Payne have been very successful, or at least the beginning, it, it would appear, of successful NFL careers. Reuben Foster is a talent, man. He is a talent. Uh, the Redskins made this statement that was very, um, to me, uh, I, I liked it in that they did not uh, self-congratulate at all. Um, that would have been the worst mistake to make if they were, you know, trying to shove this in the face of people that 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 said that it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, self-congratulation for them should never happen. There's nothing to congratulate themselves about uh, until they start to win, and I'm talking about winning in January and February, uh, which hasn't happened in years, uh, to be exact, 14 years. Since their last playoff win, right? 14 years, right? It was 2006, January 2006, when they went to Tampa yeah. and won. Yeah. That's their last playoff win. Um, so it's going to be 14 years <laughs> this coming year. Uh, but uh, they also talked in their statement about a lot of things that Reuben Foster has to do and some restrictions. And there, it was a very protective written press release about how 
despite the fact that there's no suspension and the charges were dropped, they are still going to pay attention to the issues that he's had and and try to be protective of him. Now, Tommy wrote something about, well, if there's nothing to worry about, why do you have to be so protective? But we know why they have to be protective. He's had multiple arrests, charges, etc. in just a few years. So this is a guy that's gotten into some issues. Now, this particular issue with this particular woman could be as much about her or even mostly about her. But we also know that the Northern California District Attorney, um, after she recanted those first, uh, the, uh, on the first charges, they all thought that she was beaten by him um, in that first thing, but talked about how victims of domestic violence often end up being put into that position of having to recant for a lot of reasons. Um, but anyway, uh, netting it out, hard to argue that Reuben Foster, no suspension, makes the Redskins look anything but right in the moment. Uh, as far as football goes, again, not to beat a dead horse, he can help. He can help a lot, and it looks like he's going to be able to help from day one. Uh, predictions? Uh, I'm not going to predict because you know what? The truth of the matter is it's 50-50 on him moving forward. It's 50-50 on the personal side of it. Would any of you disagree with those odds right now that there's a 50% chance that he never has another issue and there's a 50% chance that he does? Most of you would put those odds heavily in favor of more likely than not there will be another issue. So it's 50-50 at best. Uh, As a player, hopefully, you know, he performs, which he can. He's got terrific talent. and Maybe this was the perfect team because of the relationships he has with his former college teammates. Maybe this is the team he needed to go to to get his act together. Uh, You know, we talked about Tiger's redemption story. Um, Certainly this wouldn't compare necessarily, but rooting for second chances has always been something that I think is human uh, and empathetic. And uh, certainly anybody that's rooting against him has something wrong with him. I hope it works out for him. All right, that's that. All right, we're going to do a ton of draft talk over the next two weeks. Uh, We're actually 10 days away from night one of the draft. And Dane Brugler, who is a draft analyst for The Athletic, he joins us now. uh, Dane, thanks so much for for making time for us. I want to start with Redskins-related stuff, and then we can move on towards um, everything and, and everybody else. First of all, they've got nine picks in this draft and lots of needs. Yet much of the talk among fans of the team, the fan base, is whether or not they'll use one or some of those picks to make a move for Josh Rosen or potentially move up to take a quarterback um, earlier in the draft. What's your guess on what the Skins do at quarterback uh, as of uh, as of 10 days before the draft? Well, they're in such an interesting spot because they don't have a top 10 pick. They don't have a top five pick. Uh, you know, they're picking squarely in the middle of the first round. And so you know, they're kind of at the mercy of the first 14 teams in front of them uh, in terms of how the quarterbacks come off the board, uh, you know, how many quarterbacks are available, is the right quarterback there, do any of these quarterbacks, uh, you know, impress them enough where it's worth packaging picks to go get your guy. Um, you know, there's so many different variables here with uh, with the Redskins and how they're going to attack this quarterback uh, uh, uh you know, situation because, uh, you know, obviously with it, the current depth chart the way it is, uh, you know, I, I don't think that they feel overly confident in that. Um, but, you know, are, is, is Josh Rosen a possibility? 
uh, or do they have their eye on one of these quarterbacks, whether it's a Drew Locke from Missouri, Daniel Jones from Duke? Uh, you know, I think the, the toughest part about, you know, when you're doing a mock draft or you're, you're trying to project these picks uh, this year is just figuring out where the quarterbacks are going to land. I think we all feel semi-confident that Kyler Murray will be the first pick to Arizona. But you know what? At this time last year, we felt confident Sam Donald would be the first pick to the Cleveland Browns right. at number one. So, you know, we just don't know. And after, just say Kyler Murray does go one, who's the next quarterback off the board and where does he go? Is it top 10? Is it you know, the Giants at six, the, the Broncos at 10, the, you know, the Bengals? I mean, it's, it's really a guessing game at this point, trying to figure out where these quarterbacks are going to land. And the Redskins are right there in that mix. Uh, so it's uh, really hard to have any confidence about how they're going to attack the quarterback position uh, in this draft, whether it's going to be in the first round or maybe they wait until the third round and get a, a Will Greer or someone like that. So, uh, you know, I, it, it's really hard to have any confidence, even, you know, we're under two weeks uh, or just almost, or close, or, yeah, under two weeks now uh, before the draft. I and mean, even now it's hard to have any confidence about it. Where would Josh Rosen be on your 2019 draft board of quarterbacks? He'd be number one, but the Josh Rosen discussion is difficult because I'll be the first to admit that all of us on the outside looking in, we only have so much uh, information in terms of how to evaluate the quarterback position because so much, it's an intangible position. You know, so much depends on, uh, you know, how he interacts with his teammates, uh, you know, the leadership skills, uh, you know, how he does during the week, and, you know, more so than any other position where, you know, you can really go based off the, off the tape and what you hear and all that. But with the quarterback, you know, it's, it's why Pat, Patrick Mahomes coming out of Texas Tech was such a difficult evaluation for everybody else because we don't know how he did on the whiteboard. We don't know mentally where he was in his development when he was coming out of college. And that's kind of what Josh Rosen, the tape, I, I, there's a lot to like. There's a lot to like about the skill set, uh, physical skill set, what he brings to the field. But there's also some questions about, you know, just the, the leadership, how he interacts with his teammates. Uh, and no one has a better idea of that than the Arizona Cardinals, who had him in the building the last year and have a good understanding of, of how he how he does in those situations. So while I do believe that he would be the first quarterback, uh, you know, on my board in this draft, we only have, you know, so much of the information and it feels like there's pieces of the puzzle that are just missing for those of us on the outside looking in. You know, you just mentioned something that's so true for those of you um, who do this and those of us that follow it and, and, and talk about, you know, who we like and who we don't and for the teams as well. But on the outside looking in, we don't get the chance. You don't get the chance to do the the due diligence required to make sure that you're not just drafting a guy with great physical talent, but you're drafting a guy that loves football, that's going to work at it, that's mm-hmm. going to be a good teammate, that has leadership ability, all of those things that, you know, as an example, the Redskins completely whiffed on when they made the massive trade in 2012 to trade up for Robert Griffin III. They missed on all of those, you know, for the lack of a better description psychological you know due diligence you know checklist items and so we're all guessing like we've heard so much about Rosen and his interests off the field and does he really love football and he comes from affluence and 
all of that stuff, mm-hmm. but we don't really have any idea. But what you're saying is on the physical side, he would be your number one quarterback in this particular draft. But like, you know, I, I think it's just a fair point. This is such a crapshoot for all of us. And it is to a certain degree for the teams too. And they get a chance to talk to these guys and their coaches and their teammates. Right, exactly. And, you know, I, I do this for a living. I mean, I, I do this 24-7, 365 days out of the year. I am watching tape, working on players, um, you know, working my contacts throughout the league. And, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to think that, you know, I, I, I can nail these quarterbacks because, yeah, like we said, we're, we're just there's a piece of the puzzle that we're missing because we don't get to fully understand where they are in that mental development and just how they interact. And because, again, quarterback it's a ceo of your franchise it's more so than just the physical traits and what they do on the field uh there's it's so much so it's such an involved position it's an intangible position so much goes into it and so yeah it, it's uh it, it can be difficult because like you said even teams that spend a lot of money a lot of resources uh with psychologists and you know just all these different resources at their disposal to figure out what makes a quarterback tick and uh you know just coming from the college level to the pro level and what they were asked to do in college and how different that is compared to the NFL. Uh, you know, there's, it's so involved and you know, that kind of the discussion with Kyler Murray, uh, you know, he's coming from an offense that was tailor made for him in a conference that didn't play defense. And so that's uh, you know, more so than just the size and some other factors that that's a bigger worry for me is just how he's going to translate uh, coming from that offense at OU with Lincoln Riley and, uh, going to face the the speed of the NFL and an offense that maybe isn't perfectly tailored to his skill set. So uh, the quarterback position is so fascinating, and uh, you know the Redskins are right in the thick of it. Um, what's fascinating is what you also said earlier, and that is at this point last year, everybody had Sam Darnold, you know, essentially as the top pick, and then it became Baker Mayfield. And for you know a month plus, maybe two months now. Um, there's been this assumption that because Cliff Kingsbury is the coach in Arizona, that the Cardinals are going to take Kyler Murray. What percent chance do you give it right now, 10 days before the first round, that Kyler Murray is the first pick versus we get a lot, uh, so much happens here over the final 10 days and it's a complete shift and it ends up being someone else? Yeah. And you know, it, it's tough. I, I would say 75%. Okay. Um, you know, it's, you try to kind of be very weary of what you hear this time of, of the year. Cause there's a lot of misinformation out there, but I, you know, I think the fact that, you know, there's so many breadcrumbs here. Um, the, the fact that Kyler Murray chose the agent that he did sharing an agent with Cliff Kingsbury, that is not a coincidence. Um, you know, the, the fact that the Cardinals are an organization that have shown they're not afraid to, move on from a decision just they made a year ago. Uh, they fired their head coach after one year, brought in Cliff Kingsbury. Um, and that's not to say that Josh Rosen it wasn't a, just a total failure, but if they see an opportunity to upgrade at the sports, at any sports, most important position, then it makes sense that you would do that. And so, you know, I, I get why they would, uh, why they would make this move if they feel like it's an upgrade at the sports, most important position. So, I, right now, where we stand, I will say 75% chance uh, that Kyler Murray will be the top pick. All right, let's go back to the Redskins for a moment because I said we were going to start with the Redskins and then I got sidetracked based on some of the things that you said. But right now, if they stay at 15 and they don't trade, make a trade with any of their other picks to try to acquire Rosen, 
Um, right now, and you can read and, and subscribe to The Athletic, by the way, where Dane Brugler has you know his mock drafts out there. Um, but can you tell us right now in your latest mock who you have the Redskins taking at 15? I went with DK Metcalf, uh, wide receiver from Ole Miss, who uh, is just such a physical freak. Uh, he's unrefined in some areas uh, as a route runner. Um, you know, he was only asked to do so much in Ole Miss offense. But, you know, he, when you run a 4-3 and you're 6'4", 230 pounds, uh, you just – you have these physical gifts that uh, can – there's so much potential there. Uh, and it's really hard to find a, an apples-to-apples comp for a guy like DK Metcalf because he is so freaky. He's almost like uh, uh, like a beefed-up Ted Gibb. You know, because he has that vertical speed where he can take the top off a of defense, but he also has a size. He, you know, he he has the size where he can box out and uh, use that length uh, to uh, take, you know, give the quarterback, uh, you know, a, a huge passing window that DBs can't really uh, affect. So with DK Metcalf, I think it gives you a lot of options. I think, you know, right now he's going to go somewhere in that 15 to 25 range is my guess. And I, you know, I think the Redskins, that's, that's one area they're looking at, uh, you know, helping the wide receiver position. Uh, I think pass rusher is something that I looked at uh, there as well, that they're going to be in right there in the mix in the mid first round for a Brian Burns, Cleveland Farrell. Uh, those could be options as well. But in my latest mock, I went with the wide receiver. Um, on Metcalf for a moment, because you use the word unrefined. I think that's what you said. Um, Chris mm-hmm. Cooley, who was my partner on radio for a few years and comes on the podcast usually once a week and does a lot of his own sort of film breakdown in preparation for the draft, he, he essentially referred to Metcalf in the same way. He said that he they're just more natural wide receivers out there. Um, uh, including A.J. Brown, his teammate at Ole Miss, and they're better hands catchers than D.K. Metcalf, and they're just guys that look more like natural wide receivers than Metcalf does as a physical, you know, with with measurables, you know, kind of a kind of a guy that just you know did incredibly well at the combine. You see that in him. Is there is he the first receiver on your board? Would he be be the first one taken at fifteen? Or would Marquise Brown go before him or someone else? It, uh, on my board, he's the first one. Uh, it, my my top 100 board, I actually have DK Metcalf, Marquise Brown, A.J. Brown uh, very close together. Uh, DK Metcalf's 27 overall, Marquise Brown's 28, and A.J. Brown, I believe, is at 31. So I, I, I'm not a huge fan of taking a receiver in this class in the top 25. Um, you know, I, I think there's excellent value uh, waiting to the second round, third round finding some talent at the receiver position. But, you know, with with DK, I, I think that, you know, everything that, we, you know, we said is correct because it's you watch his tape and it's just a high volume of vertical routes, uh, you know, go routes, curls, comebacks, those types of things. Uh, didn't really, you know, there wasn't any complexity to what he was doing out there. And it, it's going to take some time for him to learn that. Um, you know, he needs to just fine-tune some things. And, you know, they're also the factor in the medicals. Uh, three years at Ole Miss two of them ended prematurely right. with a season-ending injury, most recently the neck injury. So, uh, you know, that's just something that the doctors will have to sign off on as well. Uh, and that kind of brings us to Marquise Brown, who had to list strength surgery in January. Uh, he's supposed to be full go before training camp and over the summer. But, again, 166 pounds, long-term durability is a question. Uh, you know, it's where do you feel comfortable taking a player like that? The explosive uh, ability that he brings is off the charts. I mean, he's – basically a Deshaun Jackson 
type of uh, type of performer with that vertical speed, his tracking skills, uh, the start-stop quickness uh, is really, really a weapon that you can use uh, all over the football field. But uh, the size, the durability, that's something you have to factor in. Um, and A.J. Brown, I, I think that uh, – I, I think you're right. I mean, he's one of the more natural guys. And he was basically a slot receiver uh, at Ole Miss. That's how he was used, but very natural routes, very natural hands. Um, you see some Juju Smith-Schuster in what he does. Um, so I think there's plenty to like about him. And his athletic profile for a guy that's six foot and a half, 226 pounds, so a really well-built kid, and he ran a 4-4. Uh, you know, his uh, three-cone was seven flat. So, I mean, solid times for a guy that size. Uh, A.J. Brown, he is worth a first-round pick, in my opinion, in this draft. Uh, but, again, I, none of these receivers are top 25 picks in my mind. But it, it'll be interesting to see where they come off the board. Uh, I think I think Washington at 15 might be the most realistic spot for the first receiver to come off the board. Um, one more on the wide receivers, because I want to go back to the pass rushers that you mentioned here in a moment. But on the wide receivers, you mentioned Marquise Brown as a Deshaun Jackson lookalike. And I, I've said about Brown and Campbell that both of them, Paris Campbell also, just remind mm-hmm. me of Deshaun Jackson. And, you know, the Redskins had Deshaun Jackson here for a few years, and they have missed him dearly, him and Pierre Garçon, quite frankly, since they left. Um, I don't I don't know what Garçon had left after he, after he went to San Francisco. But Paris Campbell, to me, out of all of these guys, at least based on all of your mocks, yours and everyone else's, he's the guy that could be available for him in the second round. Do you agree? Uh, I think there's a good chance Paris Campbell goes in the first round. Um, It's just, you know, I I think 22 to Baltimore is a possibility. I know they like him. They're trying to uh, look at their wide receiver uh, position and how they can help Lamar Jackson. Uh, Paris Campbell comes in at number 43 overall on my board. Um, You know, he's a guy who was that H-back uh, in Urban Meyer's offense, that Percy Harvin type of role, a lot of jet sweeps, a lot of screens, bubbles, thing, you know, underneath patterns. Uh, so the question was downfield. Can he track the football? Can he run vertical routes? We know he has the speed, but what he did at the combine, and not just the 40-yard dash, but positional drills, the way he did run downfield routes and track the football and catch the football, that really impressed uh, evaluators. And so I think Paris Campbell, more so, I mean, the 4 one was obviously outstanding, especially for a kid that's, Six foot, 205 pounds, well built. Uh, but what he did uh, in the positional specific drills, that's really what I, I think caught the eye of evaluators and why he's being talked about as a, a top 40 pick. All right. On the pass rushers, you mentioned Burns, you mentioned Farrell. The Redskins, Dane, have not had an edge speed rusher in forever. Ryan Kerrigan's a power rusher. Um, Preston Smith, uh, you know, sort of the same thing. They haven't had a fear-inducing edge pass rusher in so long, and it's been something that's really hurt them over the years. I'm wondering of the guys that could potentially be there at 15, who's the best speed rusher that could be there at 15? I know Burns has certainly got edge speed and explosiveness. Mm -hmm. Who else in this draft or in, in, among your top guys are speed rushers versus power rushers. And I'm talking about true outside linebacker, three, four Von Miller types. I mean, not a Von Miller, but somebody sure. approximating the kind of player he is with that, you know, explosive speed. I, I mean, really, I, it, it comes down to Brian Burns. Uh, it really does. I think Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, Montez Sweat. will be I, gone. G- good chance those three guys are gone somewhere in the top 12 picks. 
Uh, and then you're looking at, okay, where's Sean Gary go from Michigan? He's not exactly that, that speed rusher, but, you know, he has a lot of traits that are appealing. Cleveland Farrell from Clemson. Uh, he, we haven't seen him. He hasn't run a 40 uh, this, uh, this pre, pre-draft process. Uh, he had a turf toe. He just, you know, he, he's not that quick twitch guy. That's not who he is. It comes down to Brian Burns. I mean, that's, that, that's his forte, athleticism. Uh, he can stand up in space. Uh, he can move around. He has that instant burst, dip around the corner. Uh, there's a lot to like about what he brings to the table, especially the fact that he came into the combine at 250 pounds. That was a big question. What was, you know, he played around 220, 230 during the season, got up to 250, and his testing numbers did not, uh, he did not have to sacrifice that athleticism uh, to get up uh, that weight to 250. Now, can he hold that weight at 250 and still perform at a high level? That's something we don't necessarily know at this point. But I think there's plenty to like about him as an athlete. Uh, he was productive. Uh, he had over 10 sacks uh, this past year as a junior for a Florida State team that really had a poor season, not a lot of talent on defense. But Brian Burns is a leader for that, that squad. So uh, he has one of the biggest wingspans in this entire draft, right. uh, 83 and a half inches. So there's a lot to like about Brian Burns. If, say, Brian Burns is off the board, say he goes uh, you know, one pick or two picks before the Redskins pick, Cleveland Farrell, you know, I, I, they could go in that direction. Um, you know, he's ironically, he reminds me a lot of Preston, uh, Preston Smith. Right. That, I think that's kind of who he is. He's not necessarily the the quick twitch rusher, but he's well built. He understands how to use his hands. Uh, he does a nice job breaking down the rhythm of blockers with, uh, you know, more than just the athletic tools. He understands. He has a pass rush plan. He understands what he's doing out there. So, uh, you know, I think there's there's plenty to like there. But again, if they want that more of that quick twitch guy, then maybe they're waiting until the second round, and you're getting you're going to go after uh, maybe a Chase Winovich, um, you know, a guy in the third round, Max Crosby. Uh, but if it's if, if they want a speed rusher in the first round, it's probably Brian Burns or bust. Uh, you know, I've I've been looking and reading all of these mocks, and uh, you know, who the hell knows, obviously. But I I, I I'm hopeful that there's still an outside shot that Sweat could fall to 15. I don't see it happening. To me, he's the most. Ex- I actually think he's as explosive, and and maybe even a, a bit more explosive than even Josh Allen is. I don't know where you have those pass rushers ranked at the top of the draft, but Sweat would be a, an unbelievable get if if he fell to 15 for the. Oh, there's no question. I, I, he's number seven overall on my board. Um, I think he's a legitimate top ten pick. There, there's so much to like about uh, what he brings to the table from a size, speed, length standpoint. Uh, you know, he had some demons in his past. You know, he, he didn't last long at Michigan State because of uh, a lot of weed issues. Uh, you know, just didn't get along with the coaches all the time. And so that was a kind of divorce that needed to happen. Um, but you talk to people at Mississippi State, and they talk very highly of, uh, of who he is. And so I think there's, there's plenty to like uh, about Montez Sweat and his maturity and kind of the player he's grown into. Uh, the heart issue is something that will be uh, looked at differently by different teams. Uh, the heart condition that was flagged at the Combine, I've talked to teams that told me that the, it's not going to affect them, that the doctors consider it a low-risk condition. So, you know, is that something that could maybe drop him a few spots? It's possible. But I would be very surprised. Not only is he a top 10, top 12 caliber player, but he plays the most important position on your roster besides quarterback. So those guys, those premium players go high. Um, I, it, it would be a, a long shot to see him available at 15. 
Um, do you have Allen rated ahead of him or not? I do. I, I, have, a, I have Bosa uh, one uh, on my board, right. uh, Josh Allen three, and then uh, Montez Sweat seven. Uh, okay. But those would be the, the top three pass rushers. All right, I want to talk about safeties for a moment because the Redskins have a need there. Um, I loved watching the Mississippi. Part of why I loved Sweat is I thought Mississippi State had the best defense in the country and, and the most entertaining to watch all season long. Um, is Abram a guy that he'll be there at 15? It seems way too early for, for a safety in that spot, but give me your safeties and, and how high they go. I think there are at least four or five of them that are potential Redskins picks in the second round. Yeah. And Abram, you know, he's, he leaves a little bit to be desired in coverage and what he's going to give you there, but he plays with so much energy, flies around the football field. Uh, you know, he, there's a lot to like about just the, the presence that he brings. Watching him on tape was very fun. You know, just he's a fun football player to, to watch because he genuinely enjoys uh, the energy that he plays with, uh, you know, working with everybody. Uh, there's so much to like about Abram. But again, he's not someone that you're going to trust as the last line of defense uh, in pass coverage, um, making plays in the football. That's just not really his game. But, again, that's why he's viewed as more of a early second rounder and not a, a lock first-round pick. So a lot to like about Jonathan Abram. If he's there in the second round, I think that would be a, a terrific pickup. Second round is really a sweet spot for these safeties. Uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson from Florida, right. I think the best uh, nickel in, in this class. He, he played strong. He played free. He played nickel. They called it the star position at Florida. So he's done a little bit of everything. The aggressiveness that he plays with, the ball skills, the toughness, uh, really like that. Taylor Rapp. From Washington, that four seven nine, uh, it was a four seven eight official forty at his pro day. That's going to knock him down a little bit. And so it's, there are teams in the mid second round, kind of pumping their fists when they saw that four seven, thinking that okay, Rap might be a, an attainable player for us now in the mid second round. Uh, Juan Thornhill from Virginia is in that mix. Deontay Thompson from Alabama. So that second round is, is really the sweet spot for these safety groups. I got a chance to see Darnell Savage uh, Jr. play a lot uh, here at, with Maryland, and I, I'm not surprised that he's flown up the boards after workouts, et cetera. He was, he was a playmaker at Maryland and one of the few that they had uh, defensively. Where, where does he fall for you? Where, where, where does he go? Is he a, is he a third round? Is he a, is he a second-day guy or not? He's definitely a second-day guy. I have him I, I, like a late two, early three. Uh, there, there's so much to like about him as uh, as a defensive back, uh, whether he's going to play corner, he's going to play safety, he's going to play nickel. can do a little bit of everything. I think the size worries you a little bit. He's under 5'11", he's under 200 pounds, but the speed that he plays with. Uh, watching him uh, on tape against Ohio State, watching him on tape uh, you know, against Texas, uh, he, he showed up, and that – quickness to the to the ball you know sometimes he's a little late seeing it but he more than makes up for it because he's so quick uh to uh, that speed he closes so fast on the football he'll make plays so uh, you know darnell savage might not be uh, a top 50 pick but he's going to come off the board right after that between somewhere between 50 and 70 i would guess is where Darnell Savage is going to hear his name called. All right, a couple more, and I'll let you run, and I appreciate the time. Would it be too early at 15 overall if the Redskins selected Hawkinson, the tight end from Iowa? Not at all. I mean, I think Hawkinson is a top-ten player in this draft. Um, He's one of the cleaner prospects. I think he's a high floor. Um, It just comes down to, uh, you know, do you value the tight end enough? or Will you 
will he make that impact on your team? Are you going to use him so it, you can justify using that high of a pick on him? And I think as long as you can justify that, you can't go wrong taking T.J. Hawkins at a 15. Uh, he's if, if you had a there's no such thing as a you know a, a can't miss player in the draft. There's there's no such thing. But if I had a bet on any one of these players in this draft, he's near the top of the list. Because as a blocker, as a pass catcher, he's a high character guy. Uh, the Iowa coaches just rave about him. They're just he's a very clean player. It's hard to see T.J. Hawkinson busting, and you know for a lot of reasons. So if he's there at 15, I know it might not be the the sexiest pick, and there's some questions about okay, do, do we value tight end enough to take him there? But I think you'd just be getting an outstanding football player. On the corners, who do you who do you have ranked as your top corner, and is there any chance that player is there at fifteen? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a good chance that we don't see a corner off the board in the first nineteen picks. Uh, I think there's a good chance that we don't see the first corner drafted until twenty. The Steelers, um, uh, the t- top corner for me is Byron Murphy from Washington, but he doesn't have ideal size uh, at uh, he's under five eleven, and he ran a four five five at the combine, so. Short and you don't have ideal speed. I think he makes up for it because of his instincts, his toughness, the the competitive nature, that uh, you know, just everything else that he has. But because he doesn't have the height, because he doesn't have the length, he doesn't have ideal speed. That's going to knock him uh, on a lot of draft boards. But there are teams, and there's so, a team in the twenties is really going to get a good football player. This corner class is really interesting. Greedy Williams, you know, has his warts from LSU. Uh, I, I really like Rocky Sin from Temple. Wouldn't shock me if he's the first corner drafted. So somewhere in the back half of round one, you know, we're going to see these corners come off the board. And if anybody's guessed the order, they come off the board. Who's the longest armed co- uh, corner in the draft of of the top guys? Uh, of the top guys, I, I believe it is. I mean, Rocky Sin he has 32 inch arms. Uh, Justin Lane from Michigan State. I, I think he he had 33 inch arms. Uh, so he's a former wide receiver. They moved the corner. Still getting things worked out, connecting the dots. Uh, there's some spacing issues there, but because he's six one and a half, because uh, you know he's a really good athlete with 33 inch arms, I think he's right there in that top 50 mix. Uh, someone's going to take the upside pick with him. All right. Lastly, sorry, one more question. Just give me your quarterbacks in order, and you know that's it, it, it's it's this way with every draft. It seems like or the the quarterback conversation. This one's really interesting because I, I'm I'm hearing Cooley came on here a month and a half, two months ago, and he said the guy that will drop significantly before the draft starts. This was he he sat there for six hours and watched tape. He said Haskins is going to drop. He's not going to be the second quarterback taken. It'll be Locke. Um, where do what do you have right now? And give me just sort of the the you know the 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 projected coming off the board order. You know, it, yeah, it really is tough. Uh, I think because Dwayne Haskins to me, he's my top quarterback, um, and because I believe in the arm, uh, I, I worry about the lower body. I worry about his ability to find those second second chance throws to maneuver through uh, you know a confined pocket. Those are legitimate questions. And in the NFL, you know, there's really no such thing as a clean pocket. I mean, you have to be able to uh, navigate through uh, the mess, all the noise. And I think with Haskins, you, you saw him get better uh, as the season went on. But you're talking about a small sample size. And I think his issues are more experience-based, not talent-based. So I'm, I'm trusting the arm with Haskins, not just – 
the velocity, but the accuracy. I, I think it's, a, it's above average. So I'm going to bet on that. Um, but I, I think that, you know, Cooley's right. I mean, Haskins wouldn't be surprised at all if he's the third quarterback drafted or the fourth quarterback drafted. Uh, opinions just all over the map on him. Small sample size is definitely part of that. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of Drew Locke fans, a lot of Daniel Jones fans. And, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Really? And that's so true with these quarterbacks. And so it's really the wild card of the first round of where these quarterbacks are going to land. And it's going to be a lot of fun on Thursday night, first day in the draft, to see where they do end up. Dane, this was great. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Follow Dane on Twitter at DP Brugler, B-R-U-G-L-E-R. He writes for The Athletic. Subscribe to that um, and get his mock drafts and his draft uh, analysis. Really appreciate the time. Anytime. Enjoyed it. All right. Thanks to Dane Brugler. Uh, we'll continue to do a lot of draft guests here between now and next Thursday. Quick word about the podcast. If you haven't rated it, haven't reviewed it on iTunes, if you'll do that, that would be really helpful. Also, subscribe really helps us, doesn't cost you a thing. And mention to people uh, that the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast is also at thekevinsheehanshow.com, which is an easy way to listen. It really doesn't matter how you listen as long as you listen. Um, that re- it just helps us uh, if you listen for a portion of it every day, and most of you listen for a significant percentage of it every day, which is um, nice. So we appreciate that. Uh, but again, review and rate it. That really helps us on iTunes um, or anywhere else you've got the opportunity to review it uh, and rate it. All right, uh, before we get to the Game of Thrones uh, Episode 1 Season 8 recap, our conversation about it, let's do a little bit more sports with Weekend DVR. Did you have a busy weekend? Don't worry. We've got you covered. It's time for Weekend DVR. All right. uh, Start with the Caps, who got the overtime win on Saturday to take a 2-0 lead. I think the biggest shock in all of hockey, though, is the fact that Tampa Bay is now down 3-0 to Columbus. And this is the nature of this sport. You know, whenever we've had these conversations in the past and people say, Uh, You know, you talk about the the results in the postseason being random way too much. It's not that random. Well, it's the only sport, the only one, in terms of long form, with best of sevens, baseball, NBA, and hockey. Anything can happen in a one-and-done. But it's the only sport where eights regularly beat ones. Like, it happens every few years. Is Detroit going to – does Detroit have any chance against Milwaukee or does, do the Clippers have any chance against Golden State? Zero. And you know who had a better regular season than Golden State and, and Milwaukee? Tampa Bay in the NHL. They're down 3 nothing to Columbus. But back to the Caps um, and that overtime win on Saturday. Uh, you know, that was – I think what we've seen in these first two games, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think we've seen two fairly even teams. You know, the Hurricanes got behind. They've gotten behind now in both of these games early on. Uh, in in game one, three to nothing at the end of the first period. It was two to nothing at one point yesterday, um, and they've come back. And in the case of game one. They had multiple opportunities to tie it up and force overtime in Game 1. They did it yesterday, and then the Caps got a Brooks Orpic goal uh, in overtime to win it. He's been sensational in these first two games for the Caps. Game 3 tonight in Carolina. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's definitely been uh, even. There's been some alarming things for the Caps. As good as they've played, uh, especially the two-way hockey thing, 
the, the power play has not been good. It, it was better in game one. They but, scored on their first two opportunities right. in game one. They they also had a couple uh, ones where they had no shots. And then yesterday they had the, the you know the five minute major where they didn't look good at all on that one. Um, so it, it's been a little hit or miss throughout, but you know overall, God, not much to complain about. Yeah, I, two two even games. Um, I think the Caps in game one at one point really didn't you know they they carried the action for. Uh, that that one stretch in the first period, and that turned out to be enough. What a pass by Kuznetsov, by the way, in the game winner, which came oh, early yeah. in overtime. And Backstrom already off to just an incredible start to this postseason. Three goals now uh, for Backstrom, uh, and he was uh, he had an assist on the Wilson goal that gave him the lead in the third period on Saturday. So Caps and Canes. Canes playing their first home playoff game in 10 years. That's going to be a crazy environment. Tonight, uh, it will be. Um, but the Caps now looking ahead. I mean, they've got the Islanders who are in total command of their series against the Pens, um, up 3 nothing in that series uh, right after their win yesterday yep. uh, in Pittsburgh. So right now it looks like Barry Trotz and then, who knows, in, uh, in in the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean, the, the path seems to be opening up for another Stanley Cup run for the Capitals. they got to win a road game. I mean, they get a split here, come home and win it 4-1. Uh, seems like, uh, you know, what, what may happen here. I don't know. Carolina's been feisty in these first two, and these series change quickly. Like, I, I, I'm saying that it's over in the Tampa Bay series, but it's really not in hockey. It's really not. Uh, Tampa could still win four in a row. It's happened... Well, I don't. When's the last time that happened? It happened. I mean, the it Caps just, did it last year. Caps did it last year in the first round. No, they weren't down three. Oh, oh, three nothing. Yeah, four, down three. Four nothing. down three nothing. I thought. I thought you were just saying yeah. four in a row in general. I mean, was the most was the most recent three nothing hole the Red Sox over the Yankees or not? Or was there one in hockey more recently? I don't know. I, I, I would have to agree. look that up, but yeah. Um, other things uh, from from over the weekend. You know, I saw. I watched the Nats. You know, load up the bases with one out and not be able to knock, you know, uh, the, the game-tying run home against Pittsburgh. They lose that series two of the three against the Pirates uh, at home. And there was one other thing I was going to mention um, sports-wise before we get to Game of Thrones. Will Wade? Oh, yeah. Will Wade. My God. Will Wade, it was just snuck in there. Will Wade, the LSU coach, reinstated. Yeah. I don't know when they put that it, it press actually, release out, I, but I saw it this I, I morning. I thought it was earlier in the day. What it turned out, it was 10 minutes before the Game of Thrones premiere. Was it really? That's when they put it Yes, out. <laughs> that was definitely planned. Uh, yeah, because Will Wade, who basically you know paid players, um, or at least we thought he paid players, has been reinstated at LSU. I thought he was definitely going to lose his job at LSU, um, but has been reinstated as the LSU uh, basketball uh, coach. So there you go on that. Oh, the other thing. It was the NBA playoffs from the weekend. Uh, that was the other thing. I, I nearly forgot to mention that. And I, I have a feeling a lot of you weren't watching a lot of the NBA. But I know some of you do, like like I do. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I was watching so much of the Masters both days um, that I missed a lot of the NBA uh, games. I did watch Golden State and the Clippers. Man, was that a feisty affair. Um, a whole lot of jawing back and forth. I mean, any game that includes Patrick Beverly is always going to have some level of of comp of high level you know 
over-the-top competition. Um, but he really tried to get up into Durant. He tried to bother Durant all night long. They both got tossed late. Man, Durant felt falls for the bait so easily. And I think sometimes tries to be mis- Mr. Tough Guy. He's not Mr. Tough Guy, and he doesn't need to play Mr. Tough Guy. He got tossed from that game, two technicals. And I think it's six. If you go beyond six, you get suspended a game in the playoffs. Uh, I also saw um, some of the Magic Raptors ending uh, you had on Saturday three of the lower seeded teams win. Three of the road teams won on Saturday. Um, yesterday you saw a typical playoff score. I mean, when was the last time in the regular season you saw 84 74? But that's what the Celtics beat the Pacers by. I thought the Thunder were on the wrong side of so many calls in the Portland game, which is really the only game I watched kind of start to finish uh, of the playoffs. Um, and the bottom line in that game is, is, is the Thunder shot 5 for 33 from behind the arc. And Paul George was awful in that game. He was also hurt going into that game. Uh, but Portland wins for the first time. And, you know, they had been swept in their last two playoff series, so they win a playoff game for the first time in a while. Um, anyway, you had the four games on Saturday, the four on Monday, and now we get to that stretch of the schedule where you barely get any games. You know, you get you get series that could have been over in a week and a half that last two plus weeks, or certainly right around two weeks. I think there are two games tonight. All right, let's get to the Game of Thrones, which you've been waiting for all show, as have I. Uh, and go ahead and play the spoiler alert that you put together for it. There it is. That is our Game of Thrones spoiler alert. So if you haven't watched it, now's the time to go back and listen to another part of the podcast. Or maybe Friday's podcast or Thursday's podcast. You can do that too. We're going to do this at the end of the show, and we're giving you fair warning to check out now if you haven't watched. I can't imagine that people haven't watched it. That had to be among the highest-rated television shows of all time last night, I would think. Certainly for cable. Yeah, I was going to say, Have we gotten any ratings inter- information I, on I it? I haven't seen it yet, but between streaming and that, it, it has to be ridiculously high. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to go through this in some semblance of, uh, with some semblance of structure, because there, were so, there was so much... We, in, we, we could just go for first, an hour yeah, we, throwing out lines yeah, and stuff. And I want to keep it to you know 10 to 12 minutes here. I, and I'm going to start with a high-level question. To you, um, I liked it, and I mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast. A lot of people that I know did not like the first episode of the final season. What did you think? Uh, I liked it overall. I understand the people who were disappointed by it, knowing that there are only six episodes in this season. I didn't think that they could have done the typical first episode, which is what they did. They did the kind of the table setting episode where stuff happens, but really it's just, all right, we're putting the pieces in place and this is where the pieces are going forward. I think you wanted or people wanted something a little bit bigger happening, knowing that now there's only five episodes left and a lot has to happen in those five episodes. I liked it. Because uh, at every turn, I, there was something else there that we had waited two years for. Now, they did get a lot into it. The only thing I think we were waiting for that we didn't get last night, and maybe it was too soon to get all this, and if that's the criticism of the first episode, have at it, because you'd be accurate. I, I'm just not overly critical of it. I've, I, didn't, I, I guess I didn't really care where I got it, and it didn't feel rushed to me. There were a couple of scenes that seemed a little bit awkward, and maybe it's because they were rushed. 
But the only thing we didn't get in that first episode, in we got it at the very end, but how it plays out will be told in episode number two is Jamie's is Jamie's arrival in the north. I mean, we get him and Bran staring each other down. Such a good shot, and it's such an it's such an interesting show in that that is like you know a, a first so much of what this last season is about ties back to the very first episode of the series in season one. You know, it really is amazing. Think about, and the second thing I wanted to get to were all of the reunions last night. In all of the reunions, many of those reunions stem from the last time they saw each other were episode one, season one. You know, John and Arya, as an example. Um, But the Jamie and Bran staring each other down at the end of the episode ties back to Jamie trying to kill Bran in episode one, season one. And by the way, a significantly pivotal moment in the series. Almost every pivotal moment came in episode one, off of episode one. And then, of course, you know, a significant, you know, moment was the last episode of season one, and that was Joffrey deciding to behead Ned Stark. But pushing Bran off that, you know, that cliff and him surviving started everything. Yes. When you think about it, it started everything. So that came at the end. That's the only thing we didn't get resolved last night. And when I say resolved, in terms of, you know, things we were expecting to see in the first few episodes, which leads me into sort of this second topic, which is the reunions. You know, this is going to be a matter of personal, you know, feeling. I thought one of the most emotional moments of this series was when Sansa and Jon reunited. It was so, you know, it's that sibling thing, big brother, younger sister, and there was no reunification, a reunion, I'm sorry, more anticipated than Jon and Arya seeing each other. They had not seen each other since the first episode of this series in season one, which established this relationship that they had, which was... Arya just in love with her bigger brother. Not in in love in the same way that much of the other they were the parts of the series of any you, of the siblings. They were so close and he she was a she was a baby and and they they didn't last night was the first time they had seen each other since the first episode and that was the part that I thought was a bit unrealistic in that she watches him and Daenerys come in and he doesn't see her. And then they've got the big meeting with Sansa and John and Daenerys with all of the leaders in that room in which, you know, Littlefinger was, you know, sliced a- apart and, you know, Lady Mormont had stood up, you know, King of the North, the whole thing. We've been in that room multiple times now in the last few Leona seasons. Mor- Mormont also got some great lines in yeah, last Yeah, she did night. too, again. Um, but th- that, that room, Arya wasn't there either. It took until halfway through the episode to get John and Arya, and then it was even a bit awkward in the way they sort of interacted, but it was emotional, I thought. It, it was definitely emotional, and it was definitely awkward, and I think part of it was kind of to show that, you know, both of these people had grown so much. You know, she had the line that was like, you know, you look shorter now because I've I've grown so much. Right. And then his response, you know, they talk about Needle is like, have you ever had to use that thing? They've become such different people. <laughs> and she says, she says, once, once or, or twice. twice. Right. Yeah. They've become such different people that, you know, it was meant to foreshadow that they have because their relationship can't be exactly the same. But because of that, it also was a little bit awkward. It was, but it was also when they 
you you saw Arya like Sansa did, just run to John and jump into his arms, and that is, you know, that big brother younger sister, you know, and what the two sisters have been through through seven years. I mean, is just this is why I think so many people love the show. Um, is that, and I've tried to explain this to two of my good friends, Tom and Scott, who mock me for watching this show. That and this is for others that don't watch it. You 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 may not be into fantasy shows, these kinds of shows, but it's so much less on the fantasy and so much more about the characters. That's what makes the show great. It's the characters and their journeys and their relationships and their desire for power and their quest for power and all the things that happen. It's not about really dragons and White Walkers. They're important to the story. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's these relationships that you've, you know, you've been waiting and watching and I don't know, I, the, the reunion of John and Arya was emotional, although awkward, I will grant you that. The reunion of Arya and Gendry and Arya and the Hound were also interesting. I love that scene. The, the one that might have been my favorite scene. With the, the Hound or episode. with Gendry? Just, just that whole scene with the two of them there and, and going from the one where it's, you know, you kind of had the begrudging respect for each other. Yeah. And then to over to Gendry where it's, you know, I have almost the sexual tension there right. between the two of them. Well, the, 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 the discussion between the Hound and Arya was... I mean, that relationship was so odd because he was a protector to Arya. At the same time, he was hopeful that Arya was going to bring him a lot of gold. Right. You know, at the end of the, she she was, you know, she was an asset for him. But their relationship through those se- those seasons or that one season was was interesting. Um, then there was Sam and, and John, you know, and their their reunion. That was, and how about Sansa and? Remember, you know, in terms of number of episodes, it's only been a few episodes since John left to go south right. and ended up bending the knee to Daenerys, but his return was also also important for Sansa again. And of course, John's return brings Daenerys and Tyrion that was to great. Winterfell. I love that scene. <laughs> what, the Tyrion and Sansa no. scene? Yes. 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 That was a great scene, which also produced, I th- think, one of... The more revealing things about what may be to come, and that is, Arya tells John that Sansa's the smartest person that she's ever known. And remember, this comes in total episode counts of three or four from when we thought Arya might want to kill Sansa. Right. All right. Um, and John knows that Sansa's smart because she saved the day in the Battle of the Bastards by bringing in Littlefinger in the Vale. So you know that she has figured these things out here over the last, you know, eight episodes, no, a year and a half of episodes of she's now grown into, you know, an adult woman with power. And it's now becoming apparent that she was incredibly smart to survive. She had these incredible intuitive survival skills. Remember, in the first couple of seasons, she hated the Lannisters but played it the right way to survive, mm-hmm. which took brains. You know, even Tyrion had recognized that she was, you know, fairly clever. But the 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 uh, the scene in which Arya says that, and then she says to Tyrion, "You really think Cersei's coming north with her troops? You, I used to think at one point you were the most clever person I knew." Yeah, 
right? Yep. That was the line I'm paraphrasing. It was something like that. Yep. She knows. She's the only one, apparently, that knows. Yep. Jamie's going to tell everybody of course. in the next episode, but she's the only one that's figured it out. So of the reunions, that was the next category of things. I liked, I, I mean, it, it, however awkward, however late and improbable, because I think one of the first things John would, would have been looking for when he returned is, where is Arya here? But he didn't. He waited until she found him, right. which seemed improbable. But anyway, that was an emotional moment. Yeah, I mean, it, it was all just really, really good. And then, like you said, it, it's really the backbone of what this show is built on is the character relationships. But, you know, again, like, as good as it was, it also kind of the table setting there. All of those little conversations set the table for what I think we're going to get big time next episode, which is how do the past relationships now apply in this new world, basically. Well, clearly there is tension between Sansa and everybody in the North and Daenerys. Correct. And the Dothraki and everybody that she's brought with her. Not just everybody in and the North, John but Sam Benthony as well. And Sam as well. And John, well, with Sam, for sure. Yes. Now that Sam knows well, what he knows. Well, but it's basically everybody versus Daenerys at this point. Yeah. And Cersei's sitting back there, you know, now having uh, having relations, relations with, with Euron, Greyjoy. Yeah. Which is just... He's such a repulsive figure in this thing. And by the way, that just as a side note, I was happy that Theon got back. We expected that to happen too. And it wasn't a significant part of the storyline, but to come back and free Yara. But then Yara to say, go join essentially your family right. in Winterfell. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But in thinking about that, obviously at this point, well, Sansa will know what Theon did. John still still does not believe that Theon's been helpful in any way. Right? Because the I, la- I, th- I think that's right. Anyway, yeah. that'll be interesting when Theon gets back. Correct. I wish Theon had stayed with his sister and figured out how to just, you know, be a force in the Iron Islands. Yeah, or, or somehow convince the entire Iron Island fleet to come up because I think Yar is a very underrated figure in the series. I, I've always she she's she's, she's just, a badass. She's a badass, but she's been such a shallow character that you know I, I have no real feelings about her. All right, significant events. By the way, the best line of the episode is when Sansa and is talking about you know f- enough food for new armies and the Dothraki and the dragons, and she says, "What do dragons even eat?" And Daenerys says, whatever they want <laughs> is I, what they eat. I, I was kind of partial to Cersei. I wanted elephants. Oh, yeah, I wanted elephants. I wanted elephants. Like, that was... And by the way, I mean, that was pr- that was a shallow um, and very much of a stretch. How he goes from, you know, she goes from saying, when the war has been won, you'll have me, to... Him essentially talking him talk, talking his way into into her into her bed. Part of that though was showing I think in that was banger. showing her mindset yeah. that she has no allies. She anymore. has she has nobody. Any she has right absolutely now. nobody. Other so than even Clyburn in the mountain, who are Kyburn in the mountain? Kyburn right? in the mountain is it exactly? Yeah. So so even if it's something that she really doesn't want to do, she's just like okay, I got I kind of gotta you know keep allies around. I gotta have people close to me. Yeah, it's, by the way, it's the second time now in two episodes, the last two episodes, that the mountain has stepped towards somebody and then stepped back. Yeah. Because Cersei decided uh, that Jamie would live 
and that uh, and that Euron would 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 bang her that night. And apparently, it went pretty well for him, or at least he thinks it did. Um, she at one point says, "You're the most arrogant man I've ever met, and I like it." Uh, anyway, um, the significant events last night, the most significant event, other than John riding a dragon, which everybody says should have been some sort of uh, you know, foreshadowing of he's, you know, he should know himself that he's a Targaryen Targaryen because he's riding a dragon. That never occurred to me. Here's, here, here's one thing about that as a book reader, in addition to the TV show, there have been non Targaryen dragon riders in the world. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, but Sam tells John, Sam tells John that he's a Targaryen and that, um, you know, he and John seems, I mean, he's surprised by it. And what's interesting about John all along is that he's been reluctant, maybe, maybe because of the bastard upbringing and the fact that he was always relegated to, you know, sort of second tier. But he almost seems like unwilling at this point to say, yeah, I'm the rightful heir to the throne. This isn't and what what we should what this should be setting up for but I'm not sure it will is for him to ask Daenerys to bend the knee to him and that's what we're going to get to at some point that, this after the one... they've had the conversation about how they've slept with each other <laughs> as well, that's aunt not, and nephew for her that shouldn't be a con- like that's not she's going to shrug it off she's going to say you know that's what the targaryens do yeah but um this was the one scene i, I wasn't thrilled with I, I thought it was. I thought I felt it was rushed. Also, I I thought it was strange. What the, John and Sam? Yeah, I, I thought that the way they did it, it was interesting that Sam was more wielding it as a weapon against Daenerys as opposed to, hey, you know, this is who you are. It's well, right, but he's found he he's well, not very happy with Daenerys well, right exactly. now. Exactly, and and they set it up specifically that way. I thought that was interesting that they chose to go in that direction. That it wasn't you know them trying to push up John as much as Sam in Sam's mind. It was, this is how you bring Daenerys down is you, you tell Sam this heritage and how he should be the heir to the iron throne. And that brings Daenerys down. That was interesting. And it was done for a reason that I haven't quite figured out yet. I, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to think as many of you perhaps did where this is going from here. You know, it could be, I mean, you know, the the odds on favorite to to sit on the Iron Throne was Bran, right? Bran I think he was and John were kind of Bran, John, and Daenerys. Yes, like they were the top three favorites, followed by I think Sansa and maybe even Sam. Arya, I think, was up there a little bit. Yeah, but I think most people think that Arya, if 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 a Stark sits on the throne, it's unless Sansa dies, right? Which certainly could happen. But the um. I don't I don't have a prediction about where it's going based on last night. I think right now, I mean, you you have the White Walkers bearing down, the Night King bearing down. That wall, you know, got busted down by the, you know, the the dead dragon in, at the end of season 7. And so they are, how is that war going to be fought? Will Jamie join the group? Will they will there be a short-term relationship to beat down the whites and then somehow figure it out afterwards. Like part of me, to be honest with you, would love to see the threat from the North eliminated as part of the show and then move back to the seven kingdoms. And that seems to be where they're heading. We we know the fights happening. Episode three. We know that already. Oh, we do by title. Yes. Oh, 
I didn't know that. They, I think you did tell me they, that. They've, they've already announced that it's the long, it's going to be the longest battle scene in TV or movie history. Well, the, the, the yes. white the, the White Walkers, the, the Night King's not winning that battle. I mean, can we? It would be shock if they if they do. Then what happens? Then he, then they go south. The, the, the fact that it's episode, the fact that it is episode three leads some possibility to. They have to retreat back to the south. They don't, you know, kill everybody, but the prominent players have to retreat to the south and then you know, like have another that's, battle. That's possible, too. Yeah, but, I, yeah, I guess that's possible. It's the, the least of the possibilities is that they wipe out everybody in the north, yes. which in, would, would include then the Starks, the, the, the Daenerys, Jamie, everybody else that's there. Theon would be back there at that yes. point. And that somehow it's now Cersei and the Greyjoys <laughs> and, and, and uh, against, against the, the White Walkers. As, as, as someone pointed out, you know, they, they had done so many shades of gray going into, you know, the first few seasons. And, uh, you know, there's not one clear protagonist. Now everyone who's remotely sympathetic is on one side. And you have zombies and demons on one side. And you have crazy queens and pirates and all that you know all the evil people on the other two sides basically there's one very clear good side right now there is um anyway i enjoyed it i i i i I guess i understand some of the criticism but i didn't sit there at the end of it and feel like some did that we were you know two years of waiting you know wasn't worth it i thought it was very much worth it uh and i can't wait for next week is next week an hour or two next, yeah next it's the first three are an hour first two are an hour and then 80 and then we get full length movie you know not, versions not quite for the movie, final four but 80 minutes for the last okay. four well getting close I, to ne- ne- next is going to be awesome because it's all it's going to be all about jamie it's going to be all about jamie in episode two I, I, did you catch? I caught like the very first. I, I try not to watch the next week on, but I caught like the first scene. Of, or what the if first Jamie week. admits to pushing Bran? How is it? Um, I mean, remember for a long period of time they thought it was Tyrion. Well, I, I think. I mean, Cat thought it was Tyrion to begin yeah, with. I, I think the big thing, more than that one, is going to be. Uh, Jamie killed Daenerys's father. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's going to be the big I, the Kingslayer. My guess, based on how they've they've kind of, you know, built this as Daenerys is now very hot headed. You can't trust her, especially with the Sam thing. Right, is that she's going to want to execute Jamie on the spot, and she's going to have to be talked down. <sighs> Jamie's become over the years one of my favorite characters. I think everybody feels the same way. Sure. He was reprehensible for the first you know year two years I, I really enjoyed cocky pretty boy uh, jamie though i well i also uh, i think that there's still we're, we're brienne went south remember sansa sent brienne south so there should be a return of brienne too at some point yeah where is brienne right now well remember sansa sent brienne south right before they killed littlefinger at the end of season seven right so, and because don't remember that scene where Brienne says, "I need to be here to protect right. you," with John right. not being here. Um, and so to see Brienne and Jamie reunite would right. be interesting, because you know I I think at the end of season seven, Cersei believes that Jamie's leaving for two reasons. He's leaving to basically uphold his the word that he gave, but he's also leaving to go find Brienne. Yeah. Maybe to a well, certain degree. Brienne was wasn't she supposed to be with Daenerys and John and them because she was part of the the Dragon Pit. Yeah. So yeah. Sansa had sent her. That's right. Yeah. Sansa so she, had sent her I, south. I she she's... was there for that. Uh, but then the promise is made. The deal Correct. is made. John's going to live up to that deal in part because he made that deal with Brienne too. 
She was there for that. Yes. God, that was such. They played that final episode of season seven before I I did too. I had not seen that final episode in a while. God, that was good. Yeah. That was so good. Um, I don't know where it goes from here. You know, it's it's unpredictable. But last night, it's it was satisfying for me to, and can't wait for next week to see how the whole thing with Jane. I would think somebody dies next week. Somebody probably dies next week. It could be Jamie. You're right. It could be. This. I don't think it's going to be Jamie. Jamie has too much for and and you set up too much with the with Braun having to you know being paid to kill them. I think you have to. He won't eventually kill him. I don't think, but you have to give him that choice. Yeah. And the, all the while, here come the army of the dead. They're they're plotting their way southward with a dragon and a whole lot of people. And that... apparently they like wall art. <laughs> they like it. Uh, all right. Uh, that's it. What else do we have from today? That was it. I mean, I, I had significant moments, reunions, and just our overall thought on the show. I'd get, I definitely would give it. Uh, on a scale of of one to ten, I'd give it a, an eight for yeah, a season say, premiere. A, solid, solid eight was satisfying, but again, just with only five episodes left, I, I do want oh, more. We we did forget one other key scene, and that was Bron um, Kyburn basically bribing yeah. Bron with, you know, to kill right. Jamie and Tyrion. Yeah, that's why I say Jamie and Tyrion have to live to give him that yeah. p- possibility. Even though I don't think Bronn's not going to kill. No, he's not going either to either one of them. But you have to have that scene where he has the opportunity to Maybe. and decides not to. All right, there you go. That's it. Uh, Game of Thrones uh, discussion, uh, season eight, episode one. Was it more than ten minutes? It was probably more like fifteen or twenty. Yeah, I think it was about uh, twenty-five minutes right. in there. Whatever. It's a podcast. We don't have hard breaks in this business, and those are the breaks. We're going to talk about what we want to talk about. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you watched it. Uh, We'll do the same thing next week, too. We'll hold it off until the end of the show. Thanks to Dane Brugler, who was on the show today. Also, Mark Schlebaugh. Uh, Thanks to Aaron. Enjoy the day.